Our gospel lesson this morning is found in John chapter 10. We are reading verses 1 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out of his, when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Let's pray. And Father, we give thanks that it is you and you alone by your spirit who opens blind eyes. And we come this morning and we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see and that we would know, that we would grasp and understand all that you have given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you will speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. During the first 10 years of ordained ministry for me, one of the major occupations that God gave me was to work with young adults. And in working with young adults, it was my privilege to go with many through phases of dating, to breaking up, to redating, to engagement, to marriage, to marital problems. This was my task. And I was thrown into this first when I was a young pastor in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was given the task of premarital counseling, and I had no clue exactly what to do. And so I 
purchased a whole host of marriage books and began reading them, and it significantly enhanced my wife's experience of marriage um, through the discipleship process that God was bringing me under through pastoral ministry. I was learning a great deal about what it meant to be a good husband. But at that same time, I was asking questions of how do you prepare people for a lifelong commitment? How do you instruct them about how to live with one another and someone who's so profoundly different? And how do you tolerate this feeling that you now live with a private investigator, that no longer can you get away with what you once did? How do you help people with all these various changes that are going on? One of the things that became clear in working with these young couples is that the main problem was a misplaced set of expectations. They didn't know what to expect. And so the task fell to me to be the one who tell them, you're going to be profoundly disappointed. (laughs) Profoundly disappointed. And the quicker you come to that realization, the healthier your marriage will be. Because it is that you have expectations that are unrealistic. They're unrealistic if you applied them to yourself. But you need to come to understand what to expect in order to be ready for the realities in front of you. And so one author even affirmed this. He wrote a book and it was entitled, What Did You Expect? It was marriage aftercare for young couples. And this is much what we find in chapter 10 in Jesus' sermon that follows the healing of the blind man is he is teaching the disciples and the church who stands in today for them about what we can expect on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus in which the grace of God has penetrated the world announcing salvation, bringing light, bringing truth. What can we expect? Because we see in chapter nine that the world, and especially the religious world, resists the grace of God. It's actually hostile to it. And so Jesus needs to do some expectation setting for his disciples. And in particular this morning, in the brief moment that we have between these two sacraments, There are two things that Jesus wants to set expectations about, things that he wants us to grasp for us to know about the realities that we live in, that lie ahead of us. And the first, simply this, is that we must grasp that we are always in jeopardy. This is one of those disconcerting expectations. It's a hard word from Jesus, but it's a word from Jesus nonetheless that we need to absorb and understand that we are always in jeopardy. If you follow in verse one, truly, truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Jesus sets out a reality here for the church, namely that there will be false shepherds that climb into the flock of God and seek to misdirect and misguide that flock. Through the passage, he calls these false shepherds several different names. In verse one and verse eight, you find the appellation thieves. Then you find robbers, strangers, and hired hands. 
Jesus is affirming a reality that's unavoidable for the church. There will be those who steal themselves into the flock of God, and then they bring about great harm. Obviously, those false shepherds don't think of themselves in that way. Jesus says they come to steal and to kill and to destroy. They come under a different banner, but Jesus wants us to understand that there is a real threat. So the natural question for us then, the one very important, essential for the church to answer, is what are the marks of these false shepherds? How do you know when you're in the hands and under the care when a false shepherd is governing over you? Jesus highlights one primary characteristic, and that is that their ministry points away from him. It's really that simple. Other interests draw them in alternate directions. They may use the Bible. In fact, we find that the false shepherds that were operating in this context in chapter nine were biblicist. They were fundamentalist. They were the reform movement of Israel. They had a keen interest in scripture. They were devoted to it. They saw themselves as the true voice of God in the world. But yet other interests were drawing them in alternate directions to the grace of God. Christ is not the beginning and the boundary. Christ is not the center and the circumference of what they preach, of what they plan, of what they proclaim. That Christ doesn't have that central place where he's held and honored. That other things sneak in and displace him. That's the concern that Jesus has. And you see, the reality for anyone who enters into the flock of God in order to be a shepherd is that there's one way of entry. Jesus acknowledges this. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And you see, the shepherd, he has to enter into the flock in the same way as everyone else. He has to go through the door. And the door is none other than Jesus Christ. This is what he says in verse seven. That the shepherd enters in through the door. And the shepherd is nothing more than a witness to the door. He's pointing to his own means of access and egress, the way that he has relationship with God. He's a witness to that. He's always declaring that. That's what he's pointing people to. And that's the worthiness of any good shepherd, any local shepherd that God puts over you, that God assigns to your care, that his only value is in the fact that he points you to the door over and over, again and again, repeatedly, obnoxiously, you could even say, pointing you to your good care in Jesus Christ. Augustine captures it well because it is easy for people to get caught up in the local shepherd. And what he says is this in his own commentary on the passage, that in the voice of the local shepherd, Christ himself speaks, and it is his voice that is heard in those whom he sends. 
This is what Jesus means when he says the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. That in the voice of the local shepherd who's a witness to the door, the true and good shepherd, the eternal shepherd of the sheep is heard. And it is his voice that the sheep respond to. So a second question pertinent for us to answer is how does this threat find expression among us today? Two main ways that we in the American church have experienced it. And the first, it was the threat of liberal theology. And for many of you, you lived through the experience of this in the 1960s and 1970s as the mainline denominations, the churches that had dominated the theological landscape and the care of Christians in the United States progressively moved away from center. This history runs back into the early 1900s where the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus, there was a movement away And there was a movement away from the miraculous Jesus. And there was a movement away from Jesus truly being God. He was seen as a wise teacher with a wonderful social program that would bring about renovation. And the kingdom of God was about showing compassion and mercy to everyone around us. Years upon years and that momentum began to grow. And suddenly you had a non-supernatural Jesus not dying a substitutionary death. And you have the decline and demise of the church. That this is one way that it plays out. And many shepherds bought into this and preached this before congregations and caused great pain because they were hired hands, not in the service of the good shepherd, not preaching in harmony with his voice. This is the form of this threat that we are very comfortable with. But there's a second form that perhaps strikes closer to home because it also finds expression in evangelical circles. Remember, Jesus is not speaking to the liberal group of biblicists in this sermon. He's speaking to the Pharisees. They were the reform movement. You could say they were the evangelicals of the day. They were interested in renewal. They were devoted to the Bible and reading it carefully. And yet they found themselves opposed to Jesus. They had many traditions of men that they had accepted. And certainly this can happen among us as well. Where we supplement the gospel and we supplant it. We add things on for people to be included and involved rather than faith in Jesus. We have norms that go beyond scripture and we require them of people. Think of how many rules that you've heard about church that you can find nowhere in the Bible. They were applications, they started in a good place, and yet then somehow they become necessary for truly belonging. Another way that we often do it is we become focused and preoccupied. It's our plans and our programs that become central. And these are often good things that we emphasize. Things that God even commands us to do, but suddenly these things that God commands us to do take up the center. And the church becomes about that particular thing. It can be a Sunday school program, it can be a building project. 
It can be church planting. It can be the cause of world missions. And suddenly what can happen is that this takes central place and Christ is forgotten. You say, surely that doesn't happen. When I was a young college graduate, I worked with a college ministry in which we particularly had a focus upon evangelism and discipleship. I lived in the fine metropolis of Clinton, South Carolina, Presbyterian College, 1,100 students, 5,000 people in the town. There wasn't a lot to do. And so I gave myself wholeheartedly to the work there at PC College, as we affectionately called it. Go hose, blue hose. As I poured myself into that, after about 18 months, there was a certain weariness in my soul. I was tired. I'd had a lot of conflict with students. Some were saying I was mean and nasty and didn't represent Jesus very well. After 18 months, I was beginning silently in my heart to believe them. <laughs> I was concerned for myself. I was emphasizing the program that I had in place for them to follow along in order to be disciples of Jesus. And so you need to go to Christmas conference and then you need to follow up with the beach project and then you need to be in weekly Bible study with me and doing your quiet times every day. And I was driving them hard and pushing them. In the midst of that season, someone gave me a sermon preached by the famous Tim Keller from Redeemer in New York City. This was 1998 before he was a big deal. I put it in the glove box of my car and didn't listen to it for months. What need did I have of that? I was doing everything right. One particular night after visiting Melissa, we were engaged at the time, I popped in the tape and listened to it while I drove home. It was a sermon on Luke 15 about the Pharisees. You would know it as the parable of the prodigal son. And that night, I thought to myself, am I converted? I don't think I am. <laughs> Here I am in ministry, heading to seminary, and I'm not sure I'm converted. Everything I'm doing betrays what I'm hearing about the good shepherd. And friends, this is how subtle it is. Yes, I was converted, but it was a profound moment of reorientation that had to happen. I was moving in a false shepherd way. I was climbing into the pen in a way that was not authorized. I was not entering through the door. And it was convicting. And it happens. It happens in churches that move in liberal theological directions. And it happens in very subtle and probably more dangerous ways inside of evangelical circles. And so we must be very careful Luther sums it up well. Listen to what he says. Christ says that the shepherd must enter by the door. That is, preach nothing but Christ. Now the gospel must be intolerant of additions and rival teachings. At that point, I wasn't intolerant enough. I allowed things to rival what was supposed to be at the center, and we can't go there. Second thing that we see here though, in Jesus' setting of expectations, is we must grasp that we're always secure. Yes, we are always under threat, but there is also a promise that comes on the backside of that, that we are always under threat, but we're also always secure. 
We're secure in Jesus Christ, who then in the second half, as he comes back to his sermon, after they didn't understand, explains that he is the chief shepherd. Yes, he has under shepherds, those who govern the church on his behalf through whom his voice is heard, but he's the chief shepherd. And that is where our security exists. And amidst all the threats and all the problems that the church encounters and faces, and certainly in our own history here at Christ Church, we know about all those threats, about all those problems, all the danger, all the peril, just how fragile it all is. Jesus says that he is the security of the church. We're to cling to him. We're to hold fast to him in faith. That faith is not a one-time transaction that we did something way back in the past, but a continuous occupation, a continuous vocation that God calls us to, and that we have to understand and acknowledge the threat and danger to which we're exposed as the flock of God, and yet know simultaneously in the midst of, in the midst of that danger that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Our security doesn't mean that the threats go away. This is what many of us would like. We want a shepherd who simply says, there will be no problems. Why? We don't like to live by faith. Faith is exercised in the midst of the threat, in the middle of the problem. It doesn't mean no problems, no danger, no peril, no difficulty. What it means is that we're never forsaken by God, that he pastures and protects us, that he guards us and he guides us, that he takes us out to green pasture, that he leads us beside still waters, that even in the valley of the shadow of death, he doesn't leave you. That's his commitment. We're always secure. When we're honest with ourselves, though, we acknowledge that we don't always experience that security the way that Jesus wants us to. We struggle with doubt. We're harassed by worries. We have many concerns whether his care is really that constant. His staff, his sling, and his stones that defend and guard us, they oftentimes feel a long ways off. And so we hear the promise of God, but we have our own secret doubts. And so it's important for us to ask, how does the shepherd remind us today of that security? What does this good shepherd do for you today to bring you into that security? Two things that Jesus speaks of here. First, he affirms his objective commitment to you. If you look in verse 10, Jesus says very simply, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is what it means to have a preoccupation with Jesus Christ. It is affirming and proclaiming and knowing that Jesus today is affirming and proclaiming to you his objective commitment. And that objective commitment was found in his death for you. Just as we said to Liam this morning, his commitment is to you. So his commitment is to you, that he is for you. And he laid down his life for the sheep. 
he had more concern and regard for you than he did for his own well-being. And it is the meditation and reflection upon that that is to bring us great comfort in the middle of all the trouble, in the middle of all the jeopardy, in the middle of all the harassment, that knowing the good shepherd and what he has done on our behalf, that he freely and voluntarily laid down his life for you. It's a fountain, a source of unending joy and comfort. Several weeks ago, a friend who was in trouble, deep trouble, and I found myself one morning praying for them, but my words were failing me. I didn't know how to pray. It's my habit to read through the Psalms as best I can every month, and so that morning I arrived in Psalm 94. As I was struggling to find the words to pray, I read these words. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. And suddenly there it was, my prayer. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. That this is what the cross of Christ in announcing that the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. This is the consolation that cheers our soul in the midst of all of our cares and our worries. And this consoles us and it consoles others. This is the experience of passing in and out of the door, knowing Jesus Christ, the gate, the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus affirming. Jesus affirming us in his commitment to us. The second way that we experience this though is that he affirms also his personal claim over us. If you follow in verse 14, Jesus uses the phrase, I am the good shepherd once again, outlining the passage. And he says, I know my own and my own know me. It's important to catch that Jesus just doesn't know the church in a broad way. He knows you. He knows you in an individual way. And what he says gets us into the great mystery of predestination because this passage takes us into the depth of God's eternal counsel. If you chase the passage a bit further, you discover that the Father has given all those who believe in Jesus to Jesus. In verse 29, my Father has given them to me. He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus takes us into the heart of that great mystery that God has known you from eternity past, God has set you apart, individually, specifically. And that he's bringing that plan to execution. That in Jesus' death and resurrection, he's securing you. But it is a personal claim that Jesus makes over your life, that you've been determined for this. It is that knowledge that can be a stumbling block for many to get caught up in the ins and outs of doctrines. But it's also that knowledge for those who are in the midst of being harassed and worried and full of concerns 
where we find this to be the deepest comfort. The balm for the soul that only God can give in the middle of all of our trouble and our trials. That he knows his own and his own know him. That all of this falls inside of God's sovereign plan and nothing can snatch us out of his hand. And therefore we can say, come disaster, come scorn, come pain. Whatever it is, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That I'm the sheep of his flock and I'm protected and secure. That he guards me, he governs me, he guides me, he takes me to green pasture. Jesus has a personal claim and he affirms that. 